Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today, we're going to talk with a really cool guy that I've uh, been able to be introduced with uh, thanks to TikTok. His name is Dylan Sessler. Now, if you're familiar with Dylan, it means that you're familiar with TikTok and you've probably seen some of his cool one-minute videos come passing through and and uh, you've probably been inspired or motivated by some of the things that he said. For me, the importance of having Dylan on the show today is that Dylan is one of the more positive people on TikTok, in my opinion. And he has a lot of content that calls for uh, and talks about mental health and mental health awareness, suicide awareness, uh, and things along those lines, and the importance of being able to reach out and have somebody to talk with uh, during those times. And so I'm very excited to have Dylan on today. I'm looking forward to hearing his story. But more importantly, I'm importing, uh, uh, excited to hear how he has chosen to become focused on forward and moving forward in his own life. And we're going to talk about that as well, as well as a podcast that he himself conducts and that you guys are going to want to pay attention to. So Dylan, thank you for being on our show today. Tim, I, I appreciate it. It's been, uh, you know, we've been, we've been trying to get this together for a while now. We finally do. And it's, it's good. I can't wait to, uh, to have a nice long discussion. Yeah, likewise. So I'll tell you what to do. Uh, let's turn the microphone over to you. And if you would, uh, kind of catch everybody up in the audience as to who Dylan Sessler is and why they need to listen to your story. Certainly. Well, I mean, I'm just a normal guy. I don't, I don't see myself as, as anything crazy special. I'm not a, I'm not a superhero. Um, I'm not an angel, which some people like to tell me. I'm just a normal dude. You know, I'm, I'm an infantryman. I've been in the Wisconsin National Guard for, for just over 13 years now. Um, and what, what separates me from other people is just what I've been through. You know, I'm, I'm just a human being that has gone through a lot of different things and has, has, you know, realistically, I've just been given an opportunity to overcome a lot. Um, and that started when I was six years old, when my father chose to commit suicide. Um, and the circumstances of that made it, made it kind of interesting for me where I came downstairs and I'm six years old, just a small kid. My sister was older than me and my mom was there. So my, my mom, my sister, me, and my dad were all standing in the kitchen when my dad says something along the lines of, um, I've got a meeting that's going to run late tonight and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be home until tomorrow. And when he said that to me, it was just nothing about it felt right. Nothing. I mean, the, the, if you, if you wanted, if you know that bad feeling that you get when something just isn't right with a person or with a situation, like I was, I was getting hit by that in my, in my stomach, you know, I was just feeling it. And as a six-year-old, the reaction to that is just start crying, you know, for me. And it was like, I grabbed my dad by my, by his leg and said, don't leave, right? Don't, please don't leave. And I'm crying, I'm bawling. And he's just like, I gotta go. I love you, you know, and I'll be back tomorrow. And that was the last thing my dad ever said to me and it was the cliche kind of walking out the front door screen door closes and he turns and goes to his car um and i didn't i didn't know you know i didn't know it was was about to happen um and the next morning it was it was my mom that woke me up early um and was like we're we're going to grandma's um didn't really tell me why you know, so I'm, I'm groggy and I'm like, you know, mom's, mom's not in the normal state of mind. And I'm trying to figure out like what's going on. And when I get there, 
it's just a room full of people that are that are talking uh, in and crying and feeling and all of these emotions are going around but nobody's telling me what's going on and finally my mom you know finally my mom sat down and told me and, and yeah, I mean it was just devastating I mean just absolute devastation and it just felt like the whole world was crushing me in a in a split second even though I knew like I knew it was coming the the day before I felt it you know as a six-year-old though like once as as fast as you get that feeling it goes away because you've got you know you're a kid and you've got other things to do and you know that that moment really defined the rest of my life you know the the, the future for me um in that moment it was a very guilt-ridden regret-ridden shame-ridden moment for me because my family and my dad's family mostly were were lutheran and in and just to give context to the story but how they looked at suicide became shameful right like he shouldn't have done that he he you know he was sick and he had it wasn't even like he had mental health issues he had depression it was he was sick you know and the words that they used were really profoundly shameful on him and and there was no there was no context about his story given to me for me to understand it was just that he was a sick person and he he's going to hell you know and that's oh, okay that's how it was given to me and i'm like i'm six years old i don't understand what's going on but that's how i that's how i'm supposed to see my dad even though i love him and you know it was it was it was shocking to me in so many different ways obviously through death and through perspective and it was incredibly difficult and because i felt like i knew and I, I had that feeling that day, guilt, right? And guilt, I mean, if you don't know anything about guilt by now in your life, like guilt, regret, and shame are, are, are just absolute dead weight. Soul and crushers. Are, yeah, I mean, they, they just destroy you. Um, and if, if that's what you're struggling with, like that's what you need to attack. That's what you need to face. And I didn't learn that. I didn't learn that until 20 years after my dad died. You know, and that's just really where my story begins. I mean, in the following years, my mom kind of moved on as as any person should. And the next man didn't show any signs of physical abuse until we actually started living together. And then when he did, he did it outside of my mom's knowledge. So when he when he abused me, it wasn't any kind of sexual abuse or anything like that. It was just physical discipline. So if I did something wrong, he would he would take me and he'd, he'd get probably a one and three quarters inch belt, old Western style. So it was all typically oh, yeah. hard leather, right? Yeah. And some sometimes studded. And he'd hit me from the small of my back all the way down to the back of my knees. Even if it was a school day the next day and I'd go to school and I'd sit on my hip, I'd sit, you know, I would just be constantly moving. But it, I mean, there was bruises constantly, whenever, you know, if I did anything wrong, it was, it was, I'd get, I'd get the belt. And that's like, living life after my dad dies, I'm instantly taught that the next man figure in my life was going to beat me anytime I did anything wrong. And it was, it was just such a confusing time for me because I'm trying to sit there and understand the regret, understand the guilt, understand the shame. And then also now realize that I'm never good enough is, is what I was learning about myself. And, 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 and it carried, it carried forward because it into, into going into middle school and high school I was bullied for being too skinny and being too tall every once in a while and, and just being quiet. You know, I was, I was you know, just normal, normal banter became, you know, Dylan's not good enough kind of stuff. And I took that normal banter deeper than, than other people would because they didn't, they didn't realize I didn't talk about my story. I didn't tell my third grade class that my dad committed suicide because we moved, we moved to a new city after my dad died and I just didn't talk about it. And you know, my, 
what happened immediately after my dad died was my dad's family more or less excommunicated my mom and, and blamed her for, for my dad's issues and understanding that my dad was beaten viciously by, by his, his father, who was an alcoholic. And, and I don't know much about his mom, but I've, I've heard not so good things about his mom too. So, I mean, there's, there's history of child abuse in my family all the way back to, you know, my, my dad's dad, my dad, um, I don't ever remember him hurting me, um, but who knows, right? Maybe there, I was, I was too young to understand that, but there was a history of child abuse with him and he was, he had severe depression, alcoholism. Um, he, he, he did drugs at times, um, heavily smoked tobacco. So he had a lot of addictions and, and, you know, the shoe fits with, in terms of domestic violence, in terms of family. And, you know, I just didn't understand that at the time. I didn't know any of that at the time. My mom didn't really tell me any of that stuff until later after I became an adult, because I mean, when is a good time to tell your kid all of that stuff? You know, it's, it's so hard as a parent to face the suicide of a husband, let alone face the suicide of a father or, or uh, a mother and try to explain that to children, you know, like you're, you can't even, you can't even express the feelings that you have. How are you supposed to, un, you know, help children understand their own? So it's, it's, it's such an incredibly confusing moment in time moment in, in so many people's lives that like suicide is so profoundly difficult to talk about, you know, and, and that's what I was that's what I dealt with. I was dealing with a hurricane of emotions along with someone else's hurricane of emotions and someone else's hurricane of emotions. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being raised by my mom and my sister because I don't have my, my dad's side of the family. And I, we don't really, other than family occasions with my mom and my mom's side of the family, I don't really have that much family. So I had a small family growing up, very small family. I had my mom and my sister and that was my family. And what it kind of pushed me towards, you know, after my dad died was suicidal ideation. I just felt like no, no one understood me. The guilt, the shame, the regret, all of it was just so much, so much crushing emotion that the first few years, it was me focused solely on understanding why my dad killed himself, that it slowly became he killed himself. Why don't you, you know, that, that rhetoric inside your head becomes so easily swayed when you have no one countering it and saying you are worthy. You, you do deserve life. You don't have to be your father, you know, and, and in the aftermath, there was, there was principles that I said, like I, I, my mom told me about the alcoholism. She told me about the um, tobacco and she told me about the depression. And I was like, I will not drink alcohol. I will not do tobacco and I will not do drugs and I will not commit suicide because that's at seven years old. That's all I understood at that point it was like, those were problems, but I didn't understand what I was doing to this day. I've never had alcohol. I've never had tobacco. I've never outside of the, you know, the, the surgical use of my drugs for, you know, for ACL reconstructions, I've never done drugs, you know, and that last one though, you know, that, that I will never commit suicide one. <laughs> there was every, you know, the first three, there was nothing that was ever going to come in the, come in the way of me not doing those things. Like I, I was, I was not going to do drugs. I was not going to drink alcohol. I never have never will. I don't need to, I don't feel any desire to, I can go out to a bar and have so much fun with my friends without them. But suicide. That is incredibly hard when the only thing you think about for 19 years is suicide. You know, when you are inundated with the question of why did you, you know, why did my dad commit suicide? And you don't have an answer because he didn't leave a note. He didn't tell anyone or tell anyone about it. He didn't talk to people. It was just this 
he's gone and you knew he was going to be gone. And why, why did he go? Why did he choose to leave, uh, you know, uh, a wife, a son and a daughter behind and, and choose death over, over being a part of his family. And I couldn't understand it, you know, and, and it was just, you know, the first few years it was, why did he do it? But then it slowly became because you're not good enough. So that's the only thing I could think of is because that's the only perspective I had at six years old and seven years old and eight years old up until whenever I, that became a mentality. And so, you know, I like to talk to people nowadays talking about perspectives and talking about mindsets and habits and, and how the three correlate. Like perspective is hardened, right? But it's built through habit and habits, the shortest term thing. Like when you, when you wake up every day and you say, I deserve life. If you do that consistently every single day, you create a mood. You create a mood every single day, a mindset every single day that I deserve life and you work for it. And then over 10 years, you create a perspective that no one can sit there and be like, you deserve to die. When the, when the perspective is hardened, you automatically deny the wrong, right? But when your perspective is soft and, and malleable at six years old, it's easy to fall into these habits of misunderstanding how emotions work and how, you know, how the perspectives of other people shape you, right? Like my family told me, my dad's side of the family told me that it's shameful to commit suicide. It's, you know, it, he, you know, it's, it's regrettable that he was even a part of our family, that kind of thing. Like, and that began to shape how I thought about it. But at the same time, it didn't allow me to understand that the emotion came from somewhere. And that was conveniently denied a, you know, a platform to speak. And that's, you know, that's not fair. You know, like we, we get into these situations where, you know, suicide becomes a problem, but then nobody, nobody really looks at why they just assume whether there's a note or not, they just assume that that person is sick or depressed or these other things, right? And they don't really go deeper, right? right. People don't just commit suicide. They, they, it's, it's not a, it, like I say, suicide is not the problem. It's the result. It's the result of years right. and years and years of lack of communication, lack of expression, lack of, you know, for better terms, support, and, and care and compassion and love, you know, when, if you want someone to commit suicide, don't talk to them, right? Don't support them, you know, tell them that the things that they say are not, are not right or not real, are not worthy of being, you know, uh, of having a platform to speak. Like you, if you want to kill people, you don't let them talk. And, and that's, that happens in so many families, right? When, when you tell your child to, you know, if, if, if that child gets hurt or something like that, to suck it up and don't talk about it, you know, or if there's internal family problems and they're not supposed to talk about them, guess what happens? They never talk about them and they're always problems. And then they re they manifest themselves later on in life. Yeah, they they learn to instead of instead of being able to voice those things, they learn how to hide those things, and then what we have later is what you were talking about is there we have the causal effect of of these lifetimes of of things happening. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and all of that became it became my perspective. You know, my perspective on life became very, oh, I mean, rough. I mean, it was just it was just this crushing image of like, and I, you know, I wasn't a weak kid, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a physical masterpiece. Or I wasn't, you know, going to go win, you know, I wasn't going to go win state football, you know, but I wasn't weak. And what my demeanor and what my perspective and what my mindset created was not the person I could have been, right? Like, 
it was it was the image of it was the self image that I built. It was a defeated child that had no idea how to emotionally understand and work through the things that he was facing. You know, I was stubborn. I had I had one thing going for me. Mm-hmm. I was stubborn enough to live. I don't know why, right? To be to be perfectly honest, through high school and through through the beginning of my adulthood, I was stubborn enough to live. And I and I thank whatever whatever I need to thank to have that because it was right. all that I had to keep going. Sure. And that you but know you- those those principles, you know, it, it mm-hmm. came back to those principles of like I told myself I wouldn't commit suicide, but I thought about it every single day, every single day from, from six years old to 25. I don't think there was a day that went by that I didn't think about my, my dad's suicide or my own. And, and that was it, you know, like that was when you, when you live with thoughts like that for so long, like it becomes an obsession. It becomes an addiction in a sense. And you don't know, like if you're never talked, you know, if you're never taught or talked to about those things, you don't know what to do with them. So you don't deny them and you just, you carry them forward every single day. And, and that's when, you know, when I joined the military, I didn't join the military to serve and to be, you know, to, to, to do my duty, you know, I sir, I, I joined the military to die because the fourth principle, I will not commit suicide, said nothing about not dying. It just said I couldn't do it myself. Right. That you weren't you weren't going to do it on your own, but yep. allowing someone else to assist you into that yep. was a was a different scenario. I, I get that. Okay. So I so I looked at the military as an honorable way to to end my life in a sense. And to to do my do my service and join the infantry as you already know and allow myself to die in the most glorious way that I could think of and that's I had no understanding of war I had no understanding of of what it was actually like and I was in for a rude awakening right and you know I I learned so much through my military career that it it kind of transformed that, you know, like that didn't stay for long. Um, because when you, when you go to basic training and you, and you begin to work within a team and a, and a platoon and you start to see like, you can't have that mentality of I'm going to, you know, die gloriously on the field of battle. No, you have to work and you have to work for your team. You have to work for others. And it became an actual, like, once, once 18 hit and I start and I joined the military, it was, it was like, I have a purpose that prolonged that, you know, that obsession with suicide. Um, and, but at the same time, it, it, it still was like, I still want to do it, but it was, it was just like, I have to do the work. So I still survived within the environment, but I worked within the environment. So there was, there was always a conflict within my mind of, thinking I wanted to die and yet working in complete contradiction to wanting to die and, and supporting the unit. Um, you know, so I would volunteer for, I would volunteer for deployments and I'd volunteer for um, whatever service that I could go overseas with. And, and eventually I got a, a deployment to Afghanistan after a couple of years. And I mean, my, my first deployment in Afghanistan in 2012 was, was rough. You know, I, it, if I had gone earlier, it would have been rougher, but 2012 was still, you know, I saw, I saw some pretty, pretty difficult things for a young adult to see. And I saw, I saw Afghans with no arms, no legs. I saw, I, I mean, I saw an Afghan with half a head still walking, you know, he came off the bird with literally half of his cranium missing, from, from an IED and he was oh. talking. I mean, he was, oh. he was, he was, I mean, he was talking Pashto, so he didn't understand what you're saying, but he was talking to people. And it was like, how, you know, like you see part, you, like at war, you see the human body do things you didn't know were possible. You know, dudes walking off helicopters with no arm and no, no, you know, no head or half a head and just living. 
their life, you know? And, and not only that, but like the first week I was there, I saw a, an American casualty, a man, um, Staff Sergeant Christopher Brown, who had been to Kunar province where I was, I think it was his third deployment. So he had been deployed to the same province two times before. And it was one of the worst provinces you could have been to outside of Kandahar and Helmand had the highest amputee rate. And he, I think he stepped on an IED and I wasn't at the, you know, I wasn't in this situation. I was on the receiving end of, of his um, helicopter. He lost three limbs, you know, and I saw that and that's incredibly hard to see. And then he, he didn't make it right. Like if we saluted his helicopter as they took his body away and it's, it's hard to know, like, that's a man who lost a whole family. You know, it was, you know, it, I, I had a profound, like, understanding of his situation because his, his wife, he had two, two kids and a baby, a newborn baby, like a brand new newborn baby. And they, oh, wow. they lost their husband that day, you know, and that's, yeah. that teaches you a, a new level of respect for life for a moment you know, and, but at, at the same time, there's survivor's guilt. And so you look at it, like, I wish that could have been me, you know, especially in my situation, because I wanted to die. And I have to, I have to look at the profound, like, almost divine understanding of like, why did he die? And why not me? I want to go. He doesn't, you know, and, and it was hard, you know, and I, and that was the first week. So I dealt with that for 11 months of my deployment silently. I didn't talk to people about it. It was just like an everyday thought. Um, and yet I was doing my work. I was doing my job. I got to the point where I worked so hard. I was working like 20 to 22 hours a day and they had to put me on, you know, they had to tell me like, you have to take the day off cause you're, you're getting ulcers, man. I'm like, it's just, it's fine. It just hurts a little bit. You know, I'm like, like you do know ulcers can kill you. I'm like, I don't care, you know? And like, you get to a point where you just don't, you don't have the care for your life anymore. And, and the signs become relevant, but sometimes people don't notice, you know? And I finally get out of, I get out of Afghanistan and I go home and, and four days later I tear my ACL and, after a deployment like that to, to have, you know, to tear an ACL, I was doing jujitsu and, and a, and a guy did a, a leg lock to me, it popped before I could even tap. And it was just gut wrenching. It was disappointing because like the military had become a path for me to actually have a purpose. And I thought like I could actually do this even like, even if I die overseas, like I could, or even if I don't die overseas, I could do this. I could see this through. I could do 20 years. And I get to a point where I tear my ACL. I'm on leave. So what the army said was like, you have to go back to Camp Atterbury, get an MRI, and then they're going to send you Fort Knox. And I went, I did all that, got to Fort Knox. And they're like, you're going to be here for the next year of your life. Get ready. I'm like, I can't do this. I'm alone. Like, my mom, my mom and sister are 2000, you know, or 500 miles away. Um, and my sister was moving, she was going overseas. And so I had no family. This was, this was back in the time of like Facebook messenger was a new thing. So I didn't, I didn't really, no one called me. No one texted me. I, I, I would, me I would message people on Facebook every once in a while, but I didn't get the, I didn't get the responses that I always wanted because I hadn't built real relationships until then. So I was alone and I wouldn't sleep because I had been just been deployed and I was, I was sleeping for one hour a day with immobility. I couldn't like my, my straight leg brace wouldn't allow me to move very quickly. So I'm pretty much stuck in my room and it was, you know, COVID, you know, like you think COVID and isolation, like you have no idea. I was in prison but I wasn't in a prison. I was just stuck in a room 500 miles away from home. And 
I couldn't do anything. It might as well have been a prison. Right. You know, and it was, it was the most depressing time of my life. And it, and it brought me to a lot of, a lot of difficult realizations, you know, and it pushed me to, I mean, if I had a gun in Fort Knox, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be alive today. I can guarantee you that the, the thing that saved my life was not having a gun. Um, and I got out of Fort Knox in seven months. Cause I was like, they told me you're going to be here a year. That's the recovery time for an ACL injury. I'm like, no, I'm going to beat that. Cause I, you know, there's, there's a bunch of wounded warriors around me who all got hurt in Afghanistan. My roommate himself was blown up, blown like 35 feet up a mountain with an IED. I'm not going to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Right. And I just worked. I worked so hard to get out of there. I gave everything I had. I worked out every single day. I was, it was like, you know, you get bored enough. You're like, you know, I'm just going to work out. And I got out, you know, seven months I did it. And they were like, I don't know how you did this, but you're good to go, I guess. And I, I was like, I'm out, I'm done. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. And I got home and like five months later, I tore my other ACL. And then a year after that, I tore my other ACL and I'm sitting there. You so know, you I'm, tore the surgically repaired ACL? No. So I, I tore my left ACL first. A year later, I tore okay. my right ACL, became a partial tear. A year after that, I fully tore my right ACL. Oh, so okay. I got, a, okay. I got a reconstruction in 2013 and another reconstruction in 2015. I stayed in the army. I don't know how. I don't know how they let me stay, but I'm still in the army. Um, after two ACL reconstructions, I'm still going in the infantry. And in 2015, when I tore my third one, it was like, it was tough. You know, it was just like a, a moment in time. I had just broken up with my, with my, my girlfriend. It was March, 2015. And I didn't actually recognize this until now, but I tore my ACL and broke up with my girlfriend, like literally within like a week or two of, of each other. And then like two weeks later, I found myself driving home from class, just thinking today's the day, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to end it today. And I'm crying. I'm, I'm pouring out my, you know, pouring out all of my emotions all the way home as 20 minute drive. And I get home, put my stuff down and I, I go and grab my Glock 34 and unload all the rounds, but one loaded it, cocked it, threw the magazine away. So it'd just be, you know, just one round. Um, and I put that gun to the back of my, like right behind my ear, my Mandula Blingata, because I'm an infantryman. I know how to kill people. Right. And I put it to my medulla because I knew that once I, once I took that shot, I wouldn't, I'd be done. Like there's, it's a medulla, it, medulla brainstem, instant shutoff switch. It's done. Right. Yes. Uh, and when I felt that cold, cold barrel touch my skin, I mean, it was just like a flash of like a family of friends of everything before my eyes. But the thing that hit me the most was my dad. You know, it was, it felt like the closest I had ever come to understanding what my dad must have felt. You know, and I never, I never got that closure. I never got that, that, you know, that necessary message of why did you do it? But in that moment of feeling that barrel, I was like, I get it. Yeah, you kind of did. You kind of got a little bit of closure there. And, and it, it became this moment of like, you know, like you, it, it's like you, you taste something sour or bitter and you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And you like, for me, it was this realization of recognizing 20 years of pent up guilt and shame and regret all coming at you in the same, in the same moment and, and realizing like, I don't need to do this. I don't need to make this choice. My dad didn't need to make that choice either, but I certainly don't need to. I can put this down and I can choose a different route, you know, and I didn't really understand that part, but I did understand that I didn't need to choose it. So 
I put the gun down. I cried. You know, I sat there and just, you know, lost control for an hour. I knew my mom was coming home. So I put the gun away and just stayed in my room the rest of the night. But I spent the next three days because I had off that, that weekend. Um, I spent the next three days just feeling and, and un- trying to understand my history and really taking this deep, hard look, like truly honest look at who I was and what had built me to this point. And I was like, I have, I have forced myself to do this alone. I have, I have forced everyone in my life to watch, but not to, but not allowed a single person to help. And I, and I took all of it on myself. I put every, every ounce of weight I could on myself and did it on my own. And I was realizing, I was like, and as, as strong as I am, I am not strong enough to do this alone anymore. And I, and I had, I had the foresight to realize like, I need to talk. I need to, if not get help from people, I at least need to tell people so I can be accountable to someone else, not myself. Cause I can't trust myself to be accountable to. So I told my, I told my best friends, Chris and Carrie, I told my sister, um, another day through phone. Cause she was, she was out of the country. And then I told my mom and the final discussion with my mom was the hardest discussion I've ever had to have in my life. You know, I, I wrote, I had to write her a letter, a handwritten letter of like, this is what I did and kind of exp- a very short explanation. And I just like, cause I couldn't say it. I could, I, I didn't have the will or the emotional control to, to say the things that I needed to say. So I wrote it because that's who I am. I, I just I love writing. I can express the writing. I handed it to her and I just cried. And, you know, she hadn't even read the letter yet, you know, she, and she's getting this letter and I'm just crying and she's reading it. She's crying. We're crying. We're all crying together. But it was a moment where I actually recognized that for 19 years, I had said nothing about what I was feeling. You know, I had no, I had no expression, no outlet, no nothing of like giving any indication. Like I gave no indication that I wanted to kill myself. And for the first time, like my mom saw that, my sister saw that, my friends saw that and were like baffled. Like how, like, how did you hide this for 19 years? I'm like, I don't know. I just, I just did, you know, and that's, I, and I, that's a lot to hold on to for 19 years. That's a lot to, yeah. to keep in. And it's no wonder that it came out as hard as it did. Right. And, you know, and I, I think about it, I'm like, how did my dad do it for longer? You know, cause he did, he did it for, you know, he didn't die until he was like 33. I, that was 25 for me. I'm like, I don't know how I lasted, you know, and he, it, it's, it's profound to, to think about just how hard people struggle and, and to, you know, if, if anybody that's listening from a a moment of weakness and you're, and you're feeling like suicide is an option, you're a, you're a warrior like you've been fighting for so long that what you, who you are is you're not allowing yourself to see that. Like you are such a fighter. You are such a warrior and you're not allowing yourself to actually look at who you are. You're, you're looking at a jaded picture of who you are that someone else has taught you to look at. You know, people are, people are, are telling you like you're worthless or you're a burden or, or showing you, right. God forbid they're, they're not telling you, but rather with their actions showing you is, you know, yourself best and you need to take a step back from what you feel and look at who you are and and know that if you're a human being, you have value because I can, I trust me, if you talk to me for five minutes, I can tell you exactly how much value you can, you can give people, you know, like 
like people don't realize that the stories that they can tell can change people's lives. Hell, if you have hands, you have value. You can make things. If you have feet, you can walk, right? You can, you can make, you can do things, right? If you have a functioning brain, you can tell stories, you can make a difference. And I just, you know, I, I do what I do because I've been to that place, you know, and I, I've helped people all my life, but it was, it was helping people all my life distracted me from allowing me to help myself. And, and don't, you know, don't allow yourself to cope by helping people until you have actually helped yourself and you have actually found peace within yourself because you're not giving people a, a, an example to follow. You're giving them a, an example that will possibly one day die. And then what do they do with that shattered image of who you were? If you're giving people, if you're suicidal and you're giving people advice and you one day die, what do you think those people are going to do with that advice? They're going to throw it out the window and they're going to follow you. And that's not what I want. That's not what I'm about. Right. I'm like, you're going to have to, you're going to have to kill me. You're going to have to, you know, like cancer's going to have to take me. Like I'm going to die in a bed, you know, in a, in a nursing home at 116 because you cannot, like, I, I cannot do it. I cannot die early. And it, I mean, that's just where I'm at. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if it's painful. I'm going to live. And I'm going to prove to people, like, I'm so stubborn that I've said so much to people at this point through through TikTok and through other, other things. Like, I'm going to show you how, like, whatever I have to face, whatever I have to deal with, and you can quote me now and you can quote me forever, whatever happens to me, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to choose to live no matter how hard it gets, and I'm just going to keep going. And that's... That's me. That's, that's me. In a I like it. No, I like it. So, you know, um, many times during these interviews, I jump in and I ask people questions. Uh, I think tonight, today was probably the first time where I think I have other than jumping in going, uh-huh. Yeah, that's nice. Where I really haven't had, had to say much because, uh, A, you're good at telling your own story. Uh, B, it's a compelling story. Uh, and, and C, it's heartfelt. And I think that anytime that I listen to somebody talk about their story, the, what really attracts me in, to their story is the, whether it's heartfelt or not. And so I, I love that about your story. Um, but I will ask you one of the questions I'd like to ask uh, people when they come on the show. And we talk about the moment where they, they kind of realize that there has to be a change. Uh, in their perspective and things. Now you mentioned, you know, growing up and, and the way that your perspective was was altered for you, about you, about your life. Uh, you talked about the stigma that uh, that other people had about your, your father's loss of life and how they placed that their stigma upon yep. you. Um, but it seems to me that your own brush with death is what changed your perspective. Would that be accurate? Is that where you decided that you needed to move forward with your own life? I think, you know, and I've, I've asked myself this question. Yes and no. You know, I, I used to be the, the kind of person where I was like, one moment can change your life. But what I'm beginning to realize, and the more I help people, and the more I work with people, because I'm a, I'm a life coach, and I, and I work with people that tell me some intimate things, right? Some dark things, some deep things. What I'm beginning to realize is that what we look at is only one thing because we have, we have so much to think about, but we can only simplify it so much or like we have to simplify it, right? And we like to think that one moment is the moment that changes us, but it's not true. Because I can, you know, I, I wrote a book about my, my story. There are moments throughout my life that I can tell you where my perspective began to change and where my, where my ultimate moment of me putting a gun to my head was informed by all of the moments that taught me certain things that all mesh together in one day. 
right? And, you know, it was, it was my dad's suicide that started me down a path. The, the bullying and the child abuse taught me things. It taught me how to manage pain. It taught me how to understand interaction in society. War taught me like what the worst of humanity can be, but it also taught me the best of humanity, right? Fort Knox taught me what it means to be alone, what it means to be isolated. And all of these things came together in a moment in 2015 and on a, on a beautiful March day for me to realize that I needed to be, I needed to look at something different. You know, I needed to look at the ball, right? If you, if you look at the ball and the light shining in, on it from one side, I needed to look at it from a different side because I was only looking at, you know, the dark side of the ball. I needed to look at the light side of the ball and that's perspective. I needed to start looking at all of those situations, not just one of them, because one situation, if you look at it for long enough, it will destroy you. But when you look at all of the situations combined to, to look at what you've actually overcome and what you've actually survived, you start to realize like, I'm damn near invincible. Like the only person that can, that can destroy me is me. And I proved that, like I got to a point where I almost did it. No one else did it. The, the child abuse didn't do it. The bullying didn't do it. It was me, you know, and to, to really answer your question, like I, yes, you know, one day makes a difference, but your whole life needs to be understood to make that one day make a difference. And that's like, that's the reality of humanity is that we like to simplify things, but life is complex. And the processes that bring us to these, these transformational days need to be understood. And, you know, that's where I go with, with a lot of my life coaching is diving into understanding all of those moments in context. And I tell people like, you're the only person that can that can understand 100% of your context because no one else can be there. Your mom's not going to be there your whole life. Your dad's not going to be there your whole life. No one else. Your wife can't be there your whole life. Like there's no person that has ever had another person be there 100% of their life. And even if they could, your mind is always going to be a factor that no one will be. No one knows what's in your mind, but you. And what that means is that you are the subject matter expert on yourself. You have to be the one that changes your life. I can inspire you all you want, but guess what? I can't do the work for you. I can't make the decisions to, to choose life and not choose death. It has to be you, you know, and that doesn't happen in a day that happens over time happens by changing your perspective one moment at a time, one thought at a time. If you're struggling, it's one step at a time. It's just one thing and the next thing, you know? All right, good. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you do on TikTok. And you said you wrote a book. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so what's the name of the book? And where can people find it? The book is not done yet. Um, it's Well, it's, even better. It's okay, written. so it's coming up. Yep. It's written. Um, I just need to finalize editing, but I'm thinking about publishing probably by summer. So the, the book okay. is called Defy the Darkness uh, and subtitled to be written yet. Um, I was going to, I was going to do choosing a life worth living, but I kind of want to make, go down, go down a different, different angle. Um, it'll be on audible. It'll be on Kindle. I'm going through Amazon, Amazon Kindle direct publishing. So it'll be Oh, excellent. Through Amazon, okay. through Audible. So very easy, very easy to get. Um, and it's, it's a self-development book through narrative, right? So it's, it's focused on helping people understand how to overcome adversity, not just suicide, not just depression, not just anxiety and PTSD, like I've been through, but anything, right? It's, it's perspective focused and habit focused and thought focused, um, but it, honestly, it's, 
I've never, I've never seen a book like mine, right? I wrote it, you know, I wrote my book because I needed that book when I was growing up. Like when, when I write books, I want to write the book that I needed that no one else could have wrote, you know, because there's no point in writing the same book that Tony Robbins writes when Tony Robbins already wrote it. I want to write a book that only speaks you know, it speaks to my story. It speaks to my understanding of life. And I've had a couple people read it and it's profound. You know, it's, it's deep, it's raw. And, and you, you know, you told me, you kind of introduced me as positive and I'm like, I'm not always positive. I'm, I'm pretty raw, you know? And, and I like that about me, like, because life isn't always positive. Well, I, I, yeah, I get that, but I also equate um, openness, honesty, with positivity true because even though even though you may be raw in how you present things even though you may be frank in how you present things i take that as positivity because i can be you can be positive about where you're going even though there's a darkness about where you've been true and so it doesn't mean that you're not a positive person you have a positive outlook on things but you're open and frank about where you've been and what you've been through and i think if your book carries along that same theme, that same line as, as what we see in your TikToks, I, I think it's going to be an amazing book. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to getting a chance to read it. So I think that'd be, that'd be a great thing. So very, very much does. And I think honestly, it's, it's better. I'm not, I've, I've never considered myself a video person, which is remarkable that I'm on TikTok and doing all these video <laughs> things because I'm a writer by okay. nature. Like I grew up writing poetry because it was the thing that I felt right. I, I allowed myself to actually feel through poetry and writing, writing that. Um, so like the book idea came to me around like 10, 11, 12, when I started reading consistently and I was like, I wish someone could give me a book about how to handle all of this because life sucks. And yeah, I mean like, it's, it's funny. Cause like I'm now on TikTok doing video and, and I'm getting obviously better at it, but, um, it's not the thing that I identify with. Like I, I would love to, to write for a living and just be, be the person that writes, writes books. But you know, that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort and you can't live off that right away. No, it's something you definitely have to build up to, but I think that's a, uh, if that's your passion and you can put into that passion, the same thing that you're putting into your TikToks, yeah. I think that, 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 that honesty, that rawness, it has a, a very nice uh, appeal to it because there's other people who are like me, who are drawn to people who are open, honest, raw, even uh, with their emotions and, and frankness of, of their stories and their truths of what they've been through. And I think that speaks to people in volumes. And if you can continue that, which I don't see why that, that would ever not be a thing for you based on our, our uh, level of interactions thus far. I, I think that that's a, a very good thing. Okay. So we'll look forward to that. Hopefully in the summer of 2021, that'd be, that'd be amazing. Uh, let's talk to now. You also have a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and what's going on over there? Yeah. I mean, if you like one minute of me on TikTok, then imagine an hour with me on, on the Dylan experience. You know, I'm, I'm on, as many platforms as I can go, like we, you know, me and Kyle, so it's, I have a co-host with it and, and we just interviewed, you know, a, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is through TikTok is like connecting with TikTok influencers and, and bringing on, especially like mental health focused TikTok influencers. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and bringing, you know, bringing my listeners value. That's, that's what I want to do. It's like, as I go forward with the business ventures that I'm doing, the TikToks, the the podcasts, everything that I do, I try and provide people value. Um, you know, even my merchandise. Like I'm wearing a I'm wearing a shirt that says "Survive." Like I think that brings value to people. You know, because some people, someone might be looking at that and being like, "All right, survive. I'm going to do that." You know, and it and it, and it speaks to people. Um, Sure. The, pod, the podcast is no different. It's just imagine what I can say to you in a minute times 60, you know, and, and it's just talking about, I've, we've talked about, me and Kyle have talked about our stories. We've talked about our, our self-development growth. 
you know, we've talked about teen depression. Now we're on episode four right now. And we, we just had a, uh, an influencer on named Tyler McClelland and just an awesome conversation. I mean, it, it just trying to bring people a new perspective on how this person go, gets through things and this person gets through things and, and trying to bring people more value. And I love it. You know, it's, it's an opportunity for me to, to connect and learn, you know, new strategies and, and learn about new people and, and bring people together. You know, that's, that's ultimately my goal is just bring people more connections to support and help. I think that's great. And, and personally, for me, um, one of the things that we've been focusing a little bit more here on Focused on Forward is, is trying to talk more about mental health and mental health awareness and, and removing some of these stigmas that are unfortunately placed on, on these conversations where people don't feel that these are conversations that they can right. have because of how other people view them and how other people uh, have felt about right. them over time. Um, so that's why, honestly, one of the reasons I was so excited to be able, that you said yes to coming onto the show, because I wanted to have, hear that from you, what, you know, how, you know, your backstory and how you got from point A to point B and, and what yeah. was uh, your level of involvement. And I think that when we hear stories like yours, uh, for myself, I hear a story like yours and I go, oh, okay things make a little more sense because you're, you're able to, and it's what you said earlier, it's all about mm -hmm. perspective, seeing, seeing a, a story through somebody else's eyes and how they view it and why somebody might feel the way that they feel about that situation, such as you losing your father uh, at six years of, of age and how you felt at, at that age and how that affected you moving forward. You know, that's not something you can just gloss over, but that, that takes a little bit right. of time to understand and and, and, but not having that perspective of, for myself, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing I think to, to have it presented like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, my, I lost my father uh, when I was, when I was six and not to make, you know, a glib comparison there, but um, you know, I, I think sometimes people are trained and I hate to even say it like that, but I think people are almost trained because of stigmas to, to, dumb it down and that, oh, it was just a loss. But, yeah, I lost my dad when he was six. And, and that there's, 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 you know, no residual fallout from that afterwards. And, and the response to it is equally trained. I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah. What does that yeah. do for me? Like, if anybody, like a, a majority of people who have lost someone at that age would say, don't be sorry. I don't want your pity. I don't want your, I don't want that. You know, the people that haven't healed would say, I want my father back. I don't want your sorry, right? Or like me, I, I'm not sorry. I'm, I am like, I could not, I could not be more honest with this and say, I do not want my life to change. If I could change my life right now, I wouldn't because I have, I am helping 378,000 followers right now overcome things. You know, I'm, I'm. I'm telling a story that's so profoundly difficult. You know, I stepped onto a platform I'm not comfortable with, with video and I'm doing things that I've never done before and I'm making an impact. I don't want my father back. I don't want my life to change. I love who I am. I've had to go through hell to get to here. You know, I've had to go through so much to get to a point where I could say to people, I love who I am. I would not change my life, but it's worth it. Every single moment that I've had to suffer all my life was worth it because it got me to a point where I could show people a, a, like a practical way. And I'm, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not offering people like smoke and mirrors. Like I sit down with people and I, sh and I walk them through the process of overcoming the adversities that they faced walking through PTSD, walking through loss, walking through these things. And it's not easy, but I can show you the way I can, I can give you an understanding of how to get through these things and how to change your perspective. And if, if I had my father back, that would change. That would all be different. I wouldn't be this man. You know, I'm, I've, right. I've had to fall in love with who I am because if I didn't, what would happen is I would be dead. And, and what value would that provide? 
this world. Right. You know, and your perspective would be completely altered as well. So, okay. So uh, we wouldn't be focused on forward if we didn't ask you two questions uh, that we ask every single guest. So I have to ask you these two things. It's uh, in the unwritten contract that you did not receive. (laughs) So (laughs) fair enough. All right. So the first question uh, is this looking back over your life story, your life lesson, uh, simply put, what is the biggest thing that you have learned? What is the greatest life lesson that you have learned? Self-empathy. Learning to understand how you got to where you are is fundamentally the most important thing you could ever possibly do for yourself. I think that's my opinion, having self-empathy, being able to look at your life and say, that was hard. That was really, really hard. And, and forgive yourself for the ignorance, forgive yourself for not understanding, forgive yourself for not being smart enough or not being good enough. And look at that and say, it's okay. Self-empathy, 100%. I, I don't even, I like nothing else can pop into my, my head that's more powerful that's than self-empathy. No, that's perfect. I love it. Okay. The next question, similar in, in its conception. So over your lifetime, you have had no doubt different teachers, role models, people that you have talked to, looked up to. Uh, perhaps it was, um, you know, people in the armed forces that were your superiors um, who have given you advice on, on different things. What's the single greatest piece of advice that you still live uh, by? My mom told me. Oh God, what was it? It was probably around 26 when I really started to to understand love. Um, I asked her what her definition of love was. And she, she looked at me and she was like, love is action. And that to me, it was like, it was this profound moment of like understanding that I didn't, I didn't follow what love really meant about myself. You know, and this was my own my own journey was like, I I heard that and I was like, wow, I don't do that. I don't do that for myself. I don't do that for others. You know, I, well, I do it for others, but I just don't, I don't give that to myself. Love is action, which means self-love is action for yourself. It's, it's taking action and saying, I love you. I care about you. You know, telling yourself, I hate you. I, I despise you and I loathe you that doing that is not love. It's, it's action. And, and when you give it to other people, you know, it's love is about giving to other people. It's not about receiving something in return. You know, that's why I say love is action without expectation. And it's the single greatest thing that I've ever learned from a person. And it's the, it's the thing that allowed me to create good relationships because good relationships are like the, the fundamental glue that holds, holds your life together. If you can have good relationships, if you, you can build good relationships to the point where you say, love is action. So I'm going to give to this person because I care about them. Now the relationship itself is different, right? My marriage has unwritten rules and written rules that you can't do. And that is where the expectations come in is like, as a, as a husband, I have to be faithful. I have to be loyal. I have to support my wife and I have to do all of these things and all these things. And that's what your vows are about. But love, I love my wife. I give her things. I give her my time. I give her my effort. I give her everything I can. And when she does it in return, you know, regardless of whether she does it in return, I still give. And if she stops at one, at one point in my life, I can still love her, but then I have to address the relationship in its entirety and say, if this has stopped, why? And is it worth maintaining? I can still love her, right? And that's like, to me, that is everything. Love is action was was the thing that really like clicked everything in my mind and gave me a, a good picture of what interactions and what what relationships really meant to people. 
All right, no, that's actually really good. Three very powerful words, love is action. So that's uh, very easily rememberable uh, and maybe not as easy to execute in our lives, but uh, that's also one of those things I think about in, in turn with that, you were talking about how, you know, earlier um, things take effort and they require effort. And so love is one of those things that requires effort, uh, even if it's for ourselves and, and directed to ourselves, it still takes time and effort. So, well, Dylan, uh, I can't say thank you enough for being on today and talking with us and sharing these things. And, and guys, if you're, you're still in and you're still listening, we want to make sure that you know that, or at least I want to make sure that you know that, that Dylan's TikToks, and, and I, I didn't say this just, you know, blindly or glibly at the beginning. I think glib is my favorite word today. <laughs> um, but his TikToks are, are very good. And he may not see them as positive or having a brand of positivity to them, but I do. Because I think anytime we can, we can shine a light on mental health and mental health awareness and, and help people to see uh, the good that's inside of them, the reasons for why uh, continuing on with life is so very, very important, uh, I think those things are positive. And so, uh, Dylan, thank you for the work that you've done there. Make sure you check him out on the Dylan Experience, which is his podcast, and he has his book, uh, currently titled Defy the Darkness, hopefully coming out uh, this summer in 2021. So um, be sure to look for that as well. And uh, so again, Dylan, thank you for being a guest on Focused on Forward. It's an honor, man. I appreciate it, Tim. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us today. Thank you for listening to Focused on Forward. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter, at podcast fof through our facebook page named focused on forward or through email focused on forward at gmail.com we look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told so until then be safe be kind and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward